You're listening to Gender, A Wider Lens. I'm Stella O'Malley, a psychotherapist in Ireland. And I'm Sasha Ayad, an adolescent therapist in the United States. Since 2016, my practice has been exclusively dedicated to gender-questioning teens and families impacted by gender dysphoria. I also work with gender-questioning teenagers, and I facilitate at support meetings for families and individuals who have been impacted by gender issues. We're curious about the concept of gender and how it's unfolding in the wider culture. Join us as we look at gender through a wider lens. Hi, Sasha. Hi, Stella. How's it going? Good. Are you well? I'm well. How about yourself? I am. I am. We're having a, a, a normal, cold, wet summer in Ireland. Okay. <laughs> Sounds lovely and enticing. <laughs> so today we're having our second listener question episode, and we really enjoyed doing the first one. It was great to hear from our audience members. People have written in on Twitter, on um, email, and all over Instagram, everywhere. We've gotten great uh, messages. And so we wanted to do a bit of a follow-up. So we discussed last time all of these plans for future episodes that were sparked by listener questions. And so, you know, we've done the Behind the Curtain series, which addressed the question of, well, how do you actually work with these young people in therapy? And so we hope that um, audience members have enjoyed that. We have gotten positive feedback about it. And we know there was a lot of interest in giftedness, and overexcitability. And so we actually have a special guest that will be on sometime in the next uh, couple of months here to talk more with us about that. And we also plan to do a series on parenting. We are aware that parenting um, an early onset gender dysphoria kid is quite different from adolescent onset, which is different from young adults. And of course, as you know from the GDSN, there are differences before a young person medicalizes versus after, whether there's estrangement or not. So there are a lot of complicated issues related to parenting that we want to cover. And then some other um, episodes that we were asked to do are episodes that you can listen to with your child. So we plan to kind of break down the common arguments that you hear from kids and from parents and try to provide a little empathy for one another. So that will be a really great episode coming up. And we want to cover things like stereotypes, suicide, puberty blockers, non-binary identities, power struggles, and, and most of those will also have a dedicated episode because they're such big topics. So today, Stella, we plan to answer some more listener questions. What do you think? Yeah, we got some so many brilliant ideas and so many brilliant kind of it's the, the ideas that we got from the listeners sparked further ideas in us. And I think we'll be kind of reading from these right up until we're old and gray. <laughs> we'll be talking about different ones. So this email from a listener is very interesting. It's kind of about how to manage the costs of gender and, you know, the issues relating to gender when the child is in their in their early 20s. So I'll read out bits of it and, and people will gather the story from it. So I'm the mother of a 23 year old daughter, the third of four children. And in 2021, she told me that she'd been exploring questions of her gender with the counsellor whom she began seeing around a year earlier. We didn't talk about her exploration much and we failed to realise how serious she was. But the sad fact is that we'd been fearful of talking to her and also basically we'd been in denial. She'd made clear that she didn't want any longer for me to open any of her medical or her insurance bills, something I'd always done as a matter of course so that I could pay all the fees. This process had provided my main way to learn what she was doing medically. She'd insisted that since she was an adult she was entitled to have autonomy over her body and its care. And then the care that she had decided that we must pay for came suddenly to include medical transition. A quick medicalization of what she has determined is the only sure way she can see a future for herself. I sheepishly said that I meant um, even payment of her own medical debts. The response was a shocked, you want me to pay for my medical expenses? Yeah, so the mom had asked the daughter to start paying for her own medical expenses. So continue on. Anyway, even talking about the money is embarrassing. It's so crass, so insignificant in the big picture. We don't want to wield it as as in a power play, 
but we also have limited resources and other kids to consider and our own integrity about not wanting to pay for what looks like a terrible disservice to our immature child mixed up in all this. The money matters. I'd love to hear you reflect on it. By the way, this morning I felt a shift in my despairing response to our situation when I heard Sasha talk about the advice that had stuck with her in the early days of working with gender-troubled young people. I may begin to find the ability to accept that a medical transition is going to happen. Our child is entering a period of learning many lessons about how to be an adult. She may come through it. Mm. So I'm, I'm happy at the end of this to discuss what piece of advice I was talking about, because I know exactly what this mom is referring to. I'm happy to share more about that later. But what do you think of this? Should you say it now or should, should you say, I say it now? Yeah, well, you have us all on tenterhooks. Okay, okay. <laughs> the suspense will, will just destroy everyone. So when I started doing this work, one of the avenues of education and exploration that I underwent to try and understand this was um, learning more about group identification. And one version of that, not the only thing, is what happens when people join really extremist religions or cults or political ideologies. And so I, I was speaking with somebody who's an expert in this field, who he himself had been part of a, an extreme religious group in his 20s and had been working with people who are exiting groups for about 30 years. And I remember talking with this guy on the phone and I was freaking out because I was so nervous about young people who might be embarking on a medical transition process that they didn't fully understand. And I said, you know, these are children. How can I work with these young people who are so stuck in their ways and they might pursue a pathway that could be medically dangerous to them? And he said to me, you know, Sasha, after doing this work for all these years, what I've realized is human beings can undergo some absolutely unbelievable things and put themselves through very unusual physical alterations, medical processes, psychological exploitation, and somehow make it out on the other end and make sense of their lives. And, you know, he always likes to uh, remind people that I think the statistic is something really high, like 80 to 90% of people who join a group of that nature leave at some point. It may take two years, five years, 10 years, but most people who join an extremist kind of group eventually leave. And so speaking to him at the time, you know, this was around 2016 or 17. I was very new to this work. I, I was almost annoyed by how flip it seemed to me, the advice he gave me. But as I've worked with these young people for a longer period of time, I've realized how invaluable that advice was. And it's true. And I think as therapists, we, we kind of in, intuitively know that, right? We see people going through shocking, shocking things in life, whether it's related to gender or totally unrelated to gender. People can survive unthinkable circumstances and somehow the human spirit pulls through. And so this is advice I try to reflect on myself. And I will sometimes share that with parents who feel really hopeless because they're scared of what, what it might mean if their child starts a pathway that ends up not being right for them. Yeah, it's very wise. It's very wise and it's right. I, I, think, I think it's the, the artist Frida Kahlo says we can endure more than we think we can. Mm. We really can. And she endured, she, had a, she, had, she really endured terrible pain in her life. Um, I, I do know, like, since I've been doing, let's say, the meetings with the GDSN, the parents. So we've got a relationship. We're now like 14, 15 months kind of going. And so I've seen this arc and I've, I've kind of, you know, I had lived through. But when you're living through with quite a lot of people, if you follow me, I'm seeing quite mm. a few parents with this arc. And you have to be so careful not to be flipped. And I'm sure I sometimes accidentally am. But I try not to be because it's it's a really deep and dark but heartening message in its own way it's a, it's a complex point and it really needs to be said it really needs to be said because people go into deep despair mm -hmm. and on the other side of that sometimes I wonder just from a personal standpoint you know 
at what at what place at what point do parents need to accept where their child is and this is a hard question for me and I'll tell you why you know I have I have met so many transgender adults who share our concerns about the quick medicalization of children and through getting to know these individuals, you know, I've often wondered, where do their parents fall? Are they accepted by their families? And it's really tricky because, you know, I've built my whole kind of perspective on the fact that I don't think medical transition should be framed as something necessary. I think it should be framed as a last resort. And for individuals who decide to go down that pathway, how can families maintain that relationship? And after how long? It's like if someone has been transitioned for six years, seven years, eight years, is that when the family may need to consider, you know, reopening that kind of door? I mean, it's a tricky question. I don't know the answer to it, but it's coming up for me sometimes when I, I wonder about, you know, individuals who have gone down that path and that's their life choice. How can families hold these perspectives and at the same time stay in relationship with their child? Yeah, and I, I think you're right. I think that particular question that you've just raised is going to be a big question in the coming years. A big, big question. I think I feel a lot of parents find it very difficult at the start and I think they should be given room to. It's very difficult to live with your, you know, your adult daughter who has one voice and one physique and then changes to a different voice and a different physique and also, also a kind of a different personality. Well, yeah, really. So it's it's very hard to renegotiate your you know it's a different person with a different name everything is different and yet they're the same because they're the same eyes you know so you're talking really really you're trying to hold a real difficult space and if the parents need space to re re relearn who is their child I think that's fair enough. I, I think you can't really hurry that process too quickly along. I think everybody's renegotiating there. It does remind me of that po prayer from um, Alcoholics Anonymous that often gets referenced in the GDSN meetings. Something like, please grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Because that's kind of what we need in life. Um... Although if you can do that, you can do anything. Really, <laughs> It's very, very hard. I do think parents are coming around when when the child starts medicalizing. I think that's when the parent needs to start rearranging their their view of the future. And just kind of on some level realizing, OK, I have a different path than I thought I had. And, I, I you know, sometimes you have to step out to step back in again. Mm. You know. So. So maybe we'll do an episode on them in our parenting series. I imagine this is going to come up a lot. So let's keep that in, in our back pockets, as we like to say. And let's think about this parent's question. So essentially, she's talking about this conflict that she feels, wanting to be supportive to her child, wanting to still be involved as a parent, yet not wanting to pay for a medical transition process that mom genuinely feels is not the best step for her child. And I, I've i heard you talk about how the system is a little bit different in Ireland than it may be here in the United States with insurance and that sort of thing. But I guess what is your initial reaction to mom's question here? This is a really big issue that comes up for parents of adults. I think she's a very loving and engaged mother. And I, I don't know if I'd be as, as kind and as loving if I, if I was paying out I think I would like to need to, I think I would need to know what I'm paying out on. And I think it is appropriate that for as long as I was paying the bills, I have a right to see the bill would be my, and I, I, I wouldn't, I don't think I'd yield to that right. I think I would say the day you can open your own bill and pay your bill is the day I stop looking at those bills because that's autonomy. While, while the 23-year-old argued with the, the mother that she needed bodily autonomy, if she wanted bodily autonomy, then she needs to pay for it because, you know, with privilege comes responsibility. 
And so I, I, I really think the autonomy is really in the parents. I know I might be coming hard line here, but I strongly believe it, if I'm honest, that if the parent is paying for it, therefore the parent has a right to input on it. Now, I do think this is an unfortunate development that college has created where parents are paying for college and then suddenly parents become part of the college course. And that is unfortunate, the consumer kind of model. But that's my, what are are your initial feelings? Because I think I'm a bit hardline. No, I mean, I think what you're saying makes sense. Just for context, I mean, in many, many families, a young adult child will stay on their parents' insurance till their mid-20s. That's pretty common here. So, uh, you know, I think it only becomes a real conflict when the child is trying to embark on some sort of medical procedure that the family doesn't want to be responsible for and doesn't want to contribute to, which is exactly where this family is right now. Is there any other kind of medical scenario where parents don't tend to balk at, maybe because metric surgery is what's occurring to me for kids in their, let's say, early 20s or late teens? You know, off the top of my head, I'm not sure there's much else that comes up. I mean, I could see perhaps if there was a young person who wanted birth control or something and their parents didn't approve, uh, things like that. But that would happen. I I, I don't know. I, I don't know if that would be exactly the same thing. Mm. Um, but, you know, I think it's I think it's interesting that when the parents said, you know, we don't want to pay for discretionary medical procedures, the daughter was quite shocked. And I think this also goes to show how how young people who are pursuing medical transition really think of it as a necessity. And that's, that's part of the kind of whole framing around this. And this is, this is a really big issue. That's very hard because parents are coming at it from one angle and the young person's coming at it from a different angle. And of course I I tend to agree with the parents in these cases, but a young person often does not have, they cannot understand why their parents are so against this. Yeah, but that's when narratives have come into play. So they see it as life-saving, life-saving surgery. And I don't see it as life-saving surgery. I see it as as kind of a dubious surgery that might help them, but that might not. And if Mm -hmm. they're very young, I'd be very reluctant to be contributing to it. One thing was that the apologetic tone in the parents' email distressed me that she felt it was so crass and so insignificant well there's four children in the family yeah it's not crass or insignificant Mm -hmm. and talking about money in a way it's almost the last taboo but I do think it it reveals a lot about a person I like to kind of talk about money Mm -hmm. within therapy because I think it really does reveal people's often sense of shame or sense of entitlement or sense of responsibility in life I think it can actually reveal an awful lot about a person and for me this email suggested this parent was slightly mortified about talking about something and yet it's it it goes back to like really you're you're going to be contributing to the child's surgical procedures that you don't agree with that's a real that's a mind bender and I really I wonder what is the what will be the protocol in the future when when the, when the kind of gender issue has kind of calmed down a little bit and will be less emotional and there'll be a few kind of reflexive, this is generally the protocol. I wonder what that one will be about paying for surgery you do not agree with. Well, I wonder if, if we have any thoughts for this mom because I get the sense that she needs to figure out exactly what her options are here. And I I tend to think that honesty is really important. And, you know, when the daughter was shocked that mom wanted her to pay for her own medical expenses, I think it's worth having a conversation about that where mom explains to her that she's framing it in a way that doesn't reflect mom's perspective. It's not that mom won't pay for her medical expenses. For example, if this young person got diagnosed with diabetes or something and needed insulin, I'm sure mom would gladly fork out any money needed to pay for it. But that she thinks that the transition process is something that her daughter is embarking on 
much too young and perhaps unnecessarily and that she doesn't want to contribute to that because she's very concerned about the safety and necessity of these procedures. So I think mom should probably use this opportunity to clarify what she means. And, you know, sometimes, again, because a young person's perspective on this might be very skewed, I think mom needs to remind the daughter or perhaps reinforce for the daughter all of the ways that she's happy to support her necessities. That's nice. Sometimes kids forget and, you know, sometimes parents will have to sit them down and say, honey, you know, ever since you were three, here are all the things that we've always encouraged you and supported you. And remember when you wanted to go on so-and-so field trip, we did whatever we had to do to make that happen. And remember when, you know, like sometimes I'll tell parents, you need to remind your child of all the things that your child knows but has forgotten about. And I think when the daughter says, you want me to pay for my own medical expenses, she might be understanding this is a kind of abandonment. But really, mom needs to clarify what she means by That's this. That's lovely. That's lovely. What happens with, with college kids in the US when they're 23 or 24? They've left college. Are they paying for their own apartment and their own life by then? I think Other it really depends medical. on the family. I mean, it depends on the family. It depends on their background. Um I think some parents kind of scaffold their kids towards more independence and have them, you know, starting to pay for their own things during college. But this really depends on the family and the socioeconomic status of the family and also their values. So I don't know if there's like a standard everybody does this or that approach. But I mean, even I mean, I know I was even on my father's health insurance till I was in my mid-20s, even though I was working and paying for my own things. So the medical piece is a bit different. Uh-huh. The insurance piece here is the, I think, longest, like the prolonged childhood stage, even if a young person is... It's the last is, to go. Mm-hmm, it's the last thing to go. In, in many cases, I mean, unless you have a job where you have benefits, a lot of people in their early 20s don't have a job with benefits quite yet. So it is very tricky here to say we're not paying for your health insurance. But I think it's a different thing to say, you know, if you are using our insurance to get so-and-so procedures, those are not things we're comfortable paying for, and here are the reasons why. Wow. This is really tricky, and it's really hard. I think if the parent does, as you said, point out what you are, like education, anything that you need, and point out why you're not willing to perhaps do this this thing that you don't agree with. That to fund something you don't agree with feels wrong as a parent. Because we're going into a really... How far do you go from support and do you move into enabling? And when you look yeah. at what is support and what is enabling behaviour, support generally is supporting functioning, healthy behaviour. Enabling is generally supporting dysfunctional behavior. That's a, that's a good rule of thumb to know whether you're mm-hmm. enabling or you're, you're supporting. And I, I think that would be where I would go. I would look up enabling. I would look up supporting and I would, you know, find my own line. If I was my parent, I, I was that parent and say, yeah, that's when I move into enabling for in this context for me, because it's a very, very, very personal scenario. But I, I would see that as the, the mm-hmm. kind of, the guidance. I think two, two quick things that I thought are important to bring up is that I think the fact that insurance covers a lot of these procedures is one of the reasons that so many young people are able to access these interventions with such ease. And, and, and I think it also creates the illusion that these are very safe, very standard procedures. You know, if I go to the doctor and I need a round of antibiotics, I don't think twice about it. And part of the reason why is because insurance covers it and the doctor wrote the prescription like with with no blink of an eye, right? Oh, yeah. So if this young person had to pay for her own medical insurance and had to go through this whole procedure herself, even though insurance will still cover it, I think paying for her own insurance would create a bit of a pause. I mean, I do think that removing financial barriers to such serious procedures 
is part of the reason that we're in this mess. Whereas a cosmetic surgery, for example, you have to pay out of pocket. It's a really big decision. You have to really think about whether or not this is something you want, at least from a financial perspective. So I, I don't think it's necessarily the worst thing if parents give a really loving but rational explanation for why they don't feel like they can support this child's medical procedures. And I say child, it's a young adult. And then secondly, you know, if this young person went on to transition under the parent's medical insurance, I can imagine they would feel racked with guilt if she later down the line felt harmed by any medical intervention she had gone through. So it's it's kind of like, you know, not wanting to be part of the process problem right, yeah. yeah and, and not and, wanting and to be part of the problem. problem yeah and not yeah. wanting to be held responsible at any capacity now i, I think there we're always weighing this against the relationship itself and i've seen some detransitioners who feel that they regret their medical procedures but they had the support of their parents at the time and they still feel close to their parents. So it's not like your child's necessarily going to turn around later down the line and say, I can't believe you let me do this on your insurance. That's not going to happen. But I can imagine from the parent's perspective, that feeling of guilt and that feeling of responsibility if, if these procedures end up harming their child. So there's a lot of moving parts here, and it's a really complicated issue. Can I just say, yeah, because I think you've just hit on something. If it, I'd nearly check your tummy <laughs> to figure out what you should do, because I mm. think this could have you waken in the middle of the night thinking I shouldn't be doing this. Do, do, do you know, it was a long email that was sent. And I think I think there's a silent shriek coming out of this parent who's, who's, who does not want to do it and is feeling shamed into doing it mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. there's a money, there's, there's, there's context there around money. And this isn't about money. This is about either supporting or enabling. I, I, you know, I don't know which, but that's what it's about, really. And I think this parent would want to continue to demonstrate and communicate that she supports her daughter in maybe other age-appropriate, developmentally appropriate ways. You know, what other ways do parents support their 23-year-old? You know, how does that look? Can you still stay engaged and be kind of that consultant kind of um, advice giver, wisdom person who helps her pick out, you know, her new apartment or helps make decisions with her about her new job. So, you know, hopefully if there is a a discussion about the insurance, this doesn't deteriorate the relationship and preclude other kinds of parental engagement. Yeah. Yeah. Good luck to that parent. Yeah. Good luck, mom. Um, we look okay, at the sh- other one. There was another one yeah, there sure. we had yes. earmarked. You read it out, maybe. Okay, so this is um, a question written. Well, it's a comment, really, written in by a mom about her husband. So she says, episode idea. Let's hear it for the dads. So she kind of gives a quick introduction and also says, you know, My son was a mama's boy when he was little, but he's grown into a young man who has quite a lot in common with his father. We're all all highly skilled at mathematics, but those two could discuss physics and other related areas like it was their first language. Now there's no communication at all. My son looked just like his dad, but hormones have changed his appearance. My husband, I assume like most men, finds it very difficult to talk with others about this. How does a man who supervises other men in a blue-collar field tell his friends that his son wants to be a girl? This has been a very lonely place for him. On a good note, our marriage has never been stronger. We've stayed the course, though blaming ourselves, blaming each other, blaming the internet. We've laughed, we've cried, we've just thrown up our hands and had a beer together. The fathers may not be the ones doing all the research or looking for the support online, but they do care. They miss their sons. And they do need us moms to be there when they are able to talk. Oh, what a loving, loving email. Like there's, there's, there's a lovely marriage. And bless them. I'm really glad they have one. I do know an awful lot of marriages have been really desecrated by mm-hmm. by gender issues mm-hmm. because they disagree. And, you know, like an, an awful lot of 
you know, deep distress in a family generally can can wreck marriages. But it can bring it together, which is lovely. Yeah. I'm just thinking about how, um, you know, this wife is really trying to articulate how lonely this probably feels for her husband. Maybe someone who doesn't talk much about it, doesn't really have the opportunity to discuss it or go to groups because maybe it's just too overwhelming. I mean, I just really, I really am touched by how much she's empathizing with her husband. On the other hand, I I know for some, some couples, the mom might feel very frustrated by the perceived lack of participation from dad. But in this email, mom says, you know, he's, he now doesn't even have much in common with his son. They don't even talk anymore. So this is really difficult. I kind of think when I'm reading it um, that there's there's something about the fathers that it it just seems to attack their sense of self. And with the mothers, they just think, oh, my God, no, I'm... It's sweeping generalizations, so big caveat there. But the mothers, they go, oh, my God, this is happening to the child. There's distress happening. Are people doing the right thing? And they're all about it and the research. Well, the father, whether even whether it's a girl transitioning to a boy or a, a boy transitioning to a girl, there's something about it that seems to go to their very sense of what it is to be a man. As in, this is my daughter changing to be like me or else this is my son I don't know why I perceive this, but I do know that we did the stats for the GDSN, the parent meetings that we have. And of, you know, hundreds and hundreds of people who've come to meetings over the year, uh, 95% are mothers. Now, Mm -hmm. mothers would probably go to meetings more in general, but I do know in AA and Alcoholics Anonymous and stuff, there's many, many men at them. So it's Mm -hmm. not always the case. But yeah. for this, this, it's it's very, very noticeable. And very often within the 5% who are fathers, some of them will be single fathers who have to be there, if you follow me. As mm-hmm. in, there is no mother to take that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What do you think of that? Yeah, I mean, I tend to think about the... F- well, there, there are several kind of iterations of this that I've seen. I think in some cases, which these are really a minority of cases, to be honest, but in some cases, the father is so overwhelmed and distressed that he really just completely withdraws. And that that is a situation where maybe the child and father don't really communicate at all anymore. This is a very sad development and I mean, I don't wish this on any family. It's really awful. Um, I think I, I also think that sometimes if you look at the family as a system, each parent ends up holding kind of an opposite pole. And so with the moms sometimes being most engaged, most research, most trying to resolve the problem, doing everything, the dad ends up, whether it's a conscious decision or not, the dad ends up being the person who's trying to diffuse conflict, trying oh, yeah. to keep things light. Um, sometimes young people will say, you know, every time I talk to my mom about gender, we get into this political debate, but my dad is more neutral about it. So, you know, whether this is a good thing or a bad thing, I'm not quite sure. But what I do know is that sometimes the dad is able to hold that more neutral pole. Um Sometimes it's deliberate. Sometimes maybe it's because dad is so terrified of really what's going on that he'd rather not talk about it. Like, you know, mm-hmm. I don't know. Um, but I, I think the dads definitely have a, a different way of responding to this gender identity issue than the they moms do. a lot they of the do. time. Yeah. The moms educate themselves very much. And I think and go in, they go in and they explore it. Well, some of the dads notably uh, say this is a phase. Don't worry about it. It's cool. This will blow over. This is so mad. This will blow over. And they hold that line very, very deep into, you know, a, a child's kind of tra- trans identification. And other others seem to just disconnect, plug out, can't deal. You know, just I just can't deal. I have seen a few parents, uh, mothers 
really use the dads in a very um, practical way where they go and they, you know, the dad isn't doing the emotional fallout, isn't doing the kind of information, but is doing the driving to far away to get them to whatever activity the mother has designated in the situation. So the father is kind of doing the jobs that uh, are needed to be done. And also, um, you know, sometimes acting as the buffer that is needed because the intensity of the mother is is a whole other issue, if you follow mm-hmm. me. And the extraordinary mm-hmm. absorption of the mother is a mm-hmm. whole issue. I suppose if you could have a mix between the dad and the mom, which is, I suppose, what parents are, <laughs> you'd probably get it right. <laughs> mm-hmm. you know. Yeah, I mean, I think sometimes it just feels like if dad was as engaged as mom, it would just be so intense. Explosive. Yeah. You know, and, and I understand completely. I mean, I work with these moms. They're amazing. Yeah. And they have really tried to take on what seems like a completely insurmountable obstacle. I mean, it's incredibly brave and ambitious. Um, and and the kid is working through something really difficult and This tension between mom and child sometimes, I think, can exacerbate all of these issues. It's a tough place to be. I mean, I don't know if there's a a great resolution here, Um, but I do think somewhere between extreme ends of the poles here is probably the best place to land. It's very hard to end up there. Yeah, I do want to make sure, though, like this is a lovely email and well done and it's gorgeous. But I want to flag that, like, look after your marriage. If if you're yes. if you're at war about this, try to take some time out and find some sort of middle ground because you, you don't want to lose your marriage. And you just don't want to lose your marriage on the basis of an issue that you, you can't agree on. That there must be a way to find some sort of common ground. If at all possible. Can you say can you say more about that? Because I imagine this comes up at GDSN and it does. other places. It's coming up on such a level, you know what I mean? Because let's say the father thinks it's a phase and will not engage and won't take it very seriously. And the mother is like taking it incredibly seriously. And there's a coldness happening and there's a, a kind of a disconnect and an alienation and a real genuine dark night of the soul for the marriage where the father thinks she's being intense and she's over the top and she needs to calm down. The mother, he's thinking of, you know, his mm-hmm, wife. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. Uh, the the wife is thinking, no, 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 he's disconnected and he's not taking it seriously. And this is the most serious thing that's ever um, happened in our family. And the child is between the two. And it, it's really, it's really, it's really causing very significant problems in marriages. And mm-hmm. I, I often think of kind of marriage counselling and things like that, that, you know, we do know as parents that we're you're meant to have some sort of united front. You're meant to have some sort of agreement. And if you disagree with this very big issue about how to approach it, I can see why big, big splits happen. And mm-hmm. yet it's such an important time that I would say, if at all possible, find your mm-hmm. middle ground there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and this is a question I ask when I do parent consultations. I say, you know, are you and your partner, your spouse on the same page with this? Because it makes a big difference. And, you know, it's not that they each have to respond in the exact same way. So I think a a couple that is functioning well can recognize what things mom is good at, what things dad is good at, and how to kind of capitalize on each parent's strengths and yeah. they can kind of deliberately divvy up that parenting strategy. I mean, I often say parenting through the ROGD process is like you have to be very strategic and you have to kind of agree on, okay, who's going to do what? And sometimes there's a call to like redistribute the parenting role. So, you know, if mom is in a heightened conflict with the child, maybe try to loosen that up by giving mom more fun things to do with the kid. And then maybe dad will take on more of the disciplinary things or vice versa, you know, depending on the situation. But it's not that both parents have to be doing the exact same thing, but it is that they have to work together as a unit and complement each other as best as they can for the same outcome, which is we want to support our child. We want to slow things down. And we want to give our kid the opportunity to make sound decisions. So 
It can be very difficult if there's a lot of antagonism between the parents or if they have very explicitly different perspectives on what should be done. And, you know, the extreme cases of this are cases where, you know, one parent wants to explicitly affirm and the other parent is not. And I've seen lots of cases where there's a divorce and some kind of a custody battle where this gender thing ends up becoming um, the, the child becomes kind of like a pawn in between the parental Absolutely. resentment. And, and this I is a this. disaster. It's really hard. A proper homegrown disaster is what that is. And the, the parent who wants to affirm has such an easy ride and the parent who doesn't has such a difficult ride in that context. Like, like absolute awful place the parent who doesn't want to affirm which let's face it they're just two different approaches to the same issue but the parent who doesn't want to affirm gets really put in the doghouse from the child and from the other parent it's it's and usually the professionals in the life of the child i mean that's so hard yeah and it's it's not even like good cop bad cop this is kind of villain parent monster parent Mm -hmm. versus saintly parent and that's not an accurate narrative because when a parent doesn't want to affirm in my experience now not always I'm sure there's lots of other reasons but in my experience it's because the parent fears about the heavy burden of medical transition and fears about the road ahead for the child it's Mm -hmm. not trans Mm -hmm. transphobia it's a genuine Mm -hmm. concern of you know distressing your body when maybe Mm -hmm. you could avoid it that mm-hmm. that's that's where it's rooted so mm-hmm. it's not fair to call mm-hmm. that parent a monster just because they're looking at the no. long-term kind of uh yeah. impact what this question made me or this comment just made me think about the fact that someone's outer outward response and uh, i hope i don't get skewered for saying this but i think men in particular they express themselves in a very different way yeah. than women and I would, I would um, be curious about the fact that they are probably suffering in their own private way and not to take uh, a husband's withdrawal as a sign that he doesn't care. It's probably just a very different, um, maybe not as helpful, maybe not as participatory, but a different way of trying to process something that feels insurmountable to him too. So I just want to kind of empathize with yeah. the dads and their their own way of trying to deal with this and trying to parent through this. It's really hard. And of course, it's it leaves moms with a disproportionate burden sometimes. And I'm, I'm sure that's incredibly hard. But this is yeah. hard for everybody involved, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. It really is. And we have different ways to be distressed. And, I, you know, in a, m- many ways, education and therapy has been feminized to a, an inappropriate degree. And so men can sometimes feel like kind of fish out of water in the mm-hmm. in the therapeutic realm and in the education realm and in the parenting realm. So they're kind of there. I make the money and I, I kind of I do the ball games with the kids and. You know, and they're, this touchy-feely and talk about your feelings is just so anathema to them that it's not mm-hmm. fair to ask men to be more like women, if you follow me. Mm-hmm. Just like it's not fair mm-hmm. to ask women to be more like men, mm-hmm. that they have their own way. Having said that, I have extraordinary sympathy for the mothers who seem to be carrying such a burden. Yeah, I mean, you know. yeah, for sure. Okay, so let's let's kind of go to some of the topics that were um, raised in some of the emails and correspondence we got. So maybe we could touch on a couple of these. And then as we mentioned at the beginning, we're going to be doing whole episodes on many. So here's one that was interesting, Stella. What is the comparison between body dysmorphia and gender dysphoria? Yeah, I see it as, I'm glad they asked, whoever asked, thank you very much. And I think a couple of people did. I think they're really connected. I I think this is a really very, very closely connected. I'd almost say anorexia and body dysmorphia combined kind of creates the the type of the gender dysphoric individual, if you follow me, that you can, I can see huge similarities with, with the two combined. 
the body dysmorphia, how it kind of could be seen to manifest in gender dysphoria would be when um, they fixate, for example, on their breasts. That's where it really looks like body dysmorphia, because they talk on and on and on about their breasts. They talk about binding and they talk about how awful their breasts are and how they're looking in the mirror. And if you know anything about body dysmorphia, you think, well, this is exactly how body dysmorphia manifests. It's fixating on one thing and and losing all sense of perspective about the importance of that thing in their life. And it feels and you some, not all, but some people who talk, um, some clients who talk about their breasts, it feels it's in a very body dysmorphic way, if you follow me, that that's where they focus. I do know there's one kind of unknown. I don't have the stat to hand. I'll look it up. Maybe when you're talking, I'll look it up. But I do know the suicidality around body dysmorphia is incredibly high. And that's not said. Yeah, that's Mm -hmm. not said very often. I know like with with mental health conditions, schizophrenia is the highest, as far as I know, just off the top of my head with suicidality or certainly mortality. And anorexia is very high. And then body Mm -hmm. dysmorphia. They're the kind of they're the big three, really. Now, I'm not mm. thinking of things like psychosis and stuff, but I, I, I really do think that anorexia and body dysmorphia of the mental health conditions that aren't as extreme, if you follow me, as as something like schizophrenia or, or psychosis, they have a very high suicidality, which which is very worrying and which isn't very mm. well known. Now, when I say anorexia, it's more like mortality with body dysmorphia it's more about suicidality if you follow me and it's it's a it's a frightening aspect of body dysmorphia body dysmorphia is a terrible prison it's a terrible Mm. terrible Mm -hmm. terrible place do you see much similarity well i'm thinking about a piece that i had written it's not up anymore but i was investigating this question and i was reading some of the more kind of gender affirmative perspectives on why these are supposedly so different and one of the arguments that was made was that people who have body dysmorphia have a skewed perception of their body parts And people with gender dysphoria have a very realistic perception of their body parts, but just don't feel they fit with their body parts. Oh, I see. So, you know, I mean, of course, I am very skeptical of a lot of diagnostic categories to begin with. So, I mean, I'm already the wrong person to ask if you were going to say, like, (laughs) are these the same or not? I tend to lump things into kind of general categories. And to me... Both of these conditions are an unhealthy fixation and rumination on wishing your body was different. Yeah. That's how I look at it. And so, yeah, you can kind of pick apart the details, this and that, this and that. But at the end of the day, the body is real, right? We're born with it. It's here to stay. And would it be more adaptive if we could learn to accept our bodies? I would say hands down, yes. I think it's very hard to argue otherwise. So that's how I kind of look at it. And I think the same is true for anorexia and bulimia and all of these body fixations, which all have a bit of a, an anxiety slash OCD quality to them. The returning over and over and over again to this body part or that body part or to my breasts or to my hips or does this make me look feminine? Does this make me look masculine? That also has such a ruminative quality to it, which to me has a lot in common with a body dysmorphia. It's the rumination that more that the anxiety and the rumination is what's so characteristic that you just mm-hmm. think, I, I know this, I've seen this. And anorexia mm-hmm. is very involved in rumination and fixation. Um, and I suppose, yeah, I see what you mean about the perception of, of your body. Um, sometimes with anorexia, though, that they, they do know they're very skinny, but they want more, more, more. It's, it's, it's kind of, it's, it's, an, it's mm-hmm. always wanting more. Um, mm-hmm. But the, the feeling that they're in a kind of a mental prison and they can't stop thinking about mm. it. That's the hardest part, which is very OCD. And, you know, yeah. like it is like, you know, um, it's like a form of OCD, I often think. Mm-hmm. When when you become kind of just ruminative 
about mm-hmm. something. It's 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 a, it's a, it is a form of OCD if you follow me. It's rumination, yeah, and that is a very valid form of OCD that attacks lots of people. And I often think, what's the difference? What is the difference? I, I don't see huge differences between, let's say, OCD rumination and body dysmorphic rumination. It's mm. it's rumination. It's being stuck. Your your brain is stuck. And often when I see people with gender, they feel stuck. Mm-hmm. They're stuck on a mm-hmm. thing, and they're, they can't move. Have you ever heard of um, uh, homosexual OCD or transgender OCD? Yeah, I have. Okay, so these are these are really interesting because it's it describes a person who is scared that they might be gay or trans. And -hmm. what's different about that versus actually being gay or identifying as trans is that these are people that have no actual reason to suspect such a thing. So if you have somebody with, let's say, homosexuality, OCD in your office, you, you know, they might say, I really don't know if I'm gay. They might be like ruminating on it all the time, constantly reading about it, taking quizzes. And when you ask them, well, have you ever been attracted to someone of the same sex? I, I don't really think so. One time, you know, I saw this guy at the gym and I thought his muscles looked nice, but I've never wanted to kiss a man or, you know, they, they're kind of, they're, there's no actual real life reason that they have this concern, but they're really obsessed with the, the wondering of why. And I think this is absolutely fascinating. And I'd be curious curious what a psychoanalyst might say if there's some unconscious something or other going on. Of course, that's where my mind goes to. But what yeah, do you think? That's where my go- mind goes to. And in fact, I'm sure all the armchair Freudians all over the world who listen to us <laughs> are going to go directly there. However, one thing about the male body is you can measure the actual sexual arousal because they actually measure the penis. They have a band on the penis and they can measure the kind of the tumescence, is that the word, of the penis in arousal. And what they have, I've looked up this, and what they have noticed is that the, literally the man's penis does not get aroused with the, with another man. The, this is a man with maybe homosexual OCD and it does with a woman and the body isn't mm-hmm. lying it's mm-hmm. literally he's mm-hmm. afraid of it, but it's like being afraid of spiders. He's afraid that he might be homosexual, but actually yeah. his body arousal is towards females. I know of people as well um, who've had, and this is quite, not quite common, but more common than you might think, which is paedophilia OCD, that they're mm. afraid they're a paedophile and they're afraid even further. They're afraid that they might have, they might have uh, abused a child and forgotten about it. And mm. you know what I mean? I got fixated about this, if you follow me. And it's it's just a, an absolute prison in your mind of being afraid. It's OCD is a is a is a really, really awful, awful, awful mental place. I remember there was somebody who wrote this great book. She's a UK journalist. I have it over there. I must look it up and put it in the notes. But she used to bring a heavy iron to work every day because she was always otherwise she'd just think she'd left the iron plugged in. Oh, I know. Oh, yeah. yeah. That's so heartbreaking. Yeah. And it's, yeah. it's so reflective of OCD. It's a prison. And we're, well, how did we get into all that? We went off from body well, dysmorphia. Well, I mean, yeah. I think we're talking about the ruminative quality yeah. of the dysmorphias, the anorexias. And to be honest, I mean, a lot of the young people who develop uh adolescent onset gender dysphoria have a history of OCD-like symptoms. Sometimes it's in relation to their autism diagnosis or other things or anxiety. But, you know, there's been a few articles I've seen recently about transgender OCD, which is the same thing of like wondering constantly if you might be trans. And Mm -hmm. I also can't help but wonder what the confluence is of social media use. And if you're taking all these quizzes constantly online, I mean, it's a bit of a chicken egg question. Can spending a lot of time on certain types of internet sites create a bit of a paranoia about your sexual identity. Like I remember hearing um, Aaron Kimberly, who did an interview with Benjamin Boyce. Um, He's a transgender man. And he was talking about how when he started really looking into queer theory ideas, I think it was in the late 90s or in his young adult years, how the ideas from queer theory gave him more gender dysphoria because he was constantly questioning his identity, his gender, his expression. So I think certain types of ideas in the culture that are prominent right now 
can almost facilitate a kind of ruminative, navel-gazing speculation about oneself that is not helpful if you have a propensity for OCD-like ruminations. I think you're so right there. And I think we have, I wrote about it in my book, Fragile, that we have really messed up the way we have brought in mental health. Something about the way we've done it has been iatrogenic. Is that how you pronounce that? That Iatrogenic, yeah. Iatrogenic, yeah. You really, you're bringing about the problem. You're you're bringing about more problems than you're solving, really, with that. Because I've I've had clients who come in to me who are, let's say, frightened that they're gay. And there's no reason for that, that they're frightened that they're gay. But they're obsessed with this frightened. And it reminds me of... It makes me think of, you know, some people go to a hypnosis show and they get hypnotized so easily because they're Mm. easily they're easily infiltrated as such in their brain. And it makes me think of, you know, I've I've, in Ireland, we were a very religious kind of um, culture for many, many years. And I've read so many different accounts and literature and heard of through my mother and father and stuff of adolescents praying to God that they wouldn't get a calling. Because in Ireland, if you got a calling, it meant you had to be a priest or a nun. And you were afraid because you didn't want to be a priest or a nun. <laughs> it was an awful life. So they would they would be there in the bed praying because they would be so frightened that they got a calling. Please don't give me a calling. Please, I won't be a good priest. Please don't give me a calling. And they blighted many years of their life fearful of their calling. And it's just like, that's the kind of, that's the, you know, the these culture bound syndromes, isn't it? That these things come in to the water and the fear, it just it's some mm-hmm. people, they take up mm-hmm. on it. Well, that's how I read it now. I don't know, is that mm-hmm. how you read it? But that's mm-hmm. how I read it. I think that's fascinating. I think that's right. And I don't really know what the, what qualities make a person more, yeah. I, I would say susceptible, but I think there's also some something kind of beautiful about the idea of being able to be swept up into something you know like I think it could be good or bad it's not necessarily only a bad thing you know you go to a concert for example and you see some people are still quite self-conscious and just kind of nodding along and then other people have completely (laughs) become abandoned into the music and they're you know so (laughs) I think that's a similar trait of someone who maybe gets the call whatever that means it is because I've gone to those hypnosis shows I never got caught up in anything and I'd look around thinking I'm not gonna I'm obviously not gonna get caught up I, I'm just do not engage to that extent the very same with concerts I'm holding back I am not falling in the way other people do so you're right you're right because I've always prided that kind of trait in myself but I miss out I must miss mm. out on the kind of utter spontaneity and the the absolute yielding to something that must be very very satisfying but I've never had a bit of you know, it's it's interesting. I'll tell a little personal story. A long time ago, I was in a small town in Texas. Don't ask me how this, you know, I ended up here, but I was in a small little rural town in Texas and I attended like um, a very, very interesting, charismatic church, like a Southern Baptist church that was charismatic. And people in the congregation were being called up by the preacher And he was kind of laying his hands on people and they were falling. They were like fainting. (laughs) And I was called up and this poor preacher kept smacking me on the head and I wouldn't fall. (laughs) And I think I kind of, I don't know if it was embarrassing, but he eventually just gave up. (laughs) And what were you like? He tried to whack me with, I, I, I just was like, this is not going to work. I just thought this is not going to work for me. And it did not work for me There you go. <laughs> for better yeah. or for worse. I think it was a positive thing. I, I stayed vertical, <laughs> but, but yeah, I mean, <laughs> I always think about that because some people are, maybe I just was in the wrong context. Maybe that wasn't my particular place to lose my sense of. No, uh, I think it's a personality but, type. There's certain people yeah. who just fall right into things, right in. And it's it's yeah. incredibly endearing, if you follow me, but it's 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 frightening if you follow me. If when you see people who do fall in, it's like, wow, that's that's yeah. frighteningly vulnerable in its way. It's very vulnerable. I think it's very yeah. vulnerable. We all yeah. have different things that can elicit our vulnerability, but I think for me that was just not the thing. There are lots of other things though. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, um, this was an interesting episode because I think we really were able to touch on the parental experience. This is something that you and I work with a lot as parents who are um, looking for support, wanting to share their perspective. And we look forward to some of these full-length episodes that we continue to work on. Got some great ideas and we're going to actually give whole episodes to some listeners' questions, which will be in the future. Thanks for joining us this week on Gender, A Wider Lens. This podcast is partially sponsored by RHYME, Rethink Identity Medicine Ethics. RHYME is a nonprofit organization dedicated to improving the long-term care for gender-variant individuals. Visit rethinkime.org to learn more. If you found value in our show, please review us on iTunes and subscribe so you never miss an episode. And you can follow us on Twitter, Facebook or Instagram. Just go to our link tree. That's linktr.ee slash wider lens pod. Our discussions are for educational purposes only and are not intended as a substitute for mental health services. 